0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give a special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined this week by a world champion. He is the Correspondence Chess World Champion, a Correspondence Chess Grandmaster. In fact, he won the tournament that gained him this title. It was completed in October of 2022. Uh, correspondence Chess, of course, historically, was played by mail. Uh, Without assistance, whether it be from computers or other humans, was the uh, general guidelines um, over many decades ago. These days, it is played primarily by email with engine assistance allowed. So the game has changed a lot, but it's still a fascinating variant of chess. We've gotten many requests to discuss it over the years. In fact, uh, I did discuss it once with Alex Dunn, who recently passed away. So rest in peace to uh, Alex Dunn, longtime columnist for U.S. Chess. But bringing it back to our guests, uh, he is a particular expert on chess engines and opening theory as one must be to be a correspondence chess background uh, grandmaster. He's written books generally on chess, on the Greek gift sacrifice, and he's written books on how to use chess space. Uh, he is a chess book and stamp collector, a columnist for American Chess Magazine, and he is now joining us. He's also a friend of mine, by the way. Welcome to the show, John Edwards.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Ben. It's a
0: pleasure. Yeah, it's long overdue. I know you've had a crazy few months. Um, even if So I wasn't shocked that you won the world championship from my vantage point, but I have been a bit surprised at how intense you've said the reaction has been. So what? how has your life changed since you were crowned world champion, Jahan? Uh, well, in many
1: regards, I'm both more and less busy. Yeah. Um, there's less chess, less chess to work on. And that was, you know, those were those 14-hour days for more than a decade. Uh, but since I won the thing, I remember distinctly on October 8th, I was giving chess lessons at the time. And I couldn't enjoy the flood of the mail because I still had classes. By the time that ended, I had already received the, the first comment. I'm not sure exactly where it was. I don't remember questioning the legitimacy of, of, a, of a world championship win that involved the machine. Um, and in this age of neural nets, and I'm sure we'll get, all, get to all of that. Uh, the reality is that it's been an amazing few months. Um, there have been more than 20 articles, a lot of requests for information. I've, a professor from Princeton reached out uh, with regard to the human-computer interface because he was really curious whether or not a human really brought anything to the party. Um, it's just been, it's been fun in that regard. I'm, I am I have to be honest, I'd rather be playing chess, <laughs> and this sudden surge of fame is uncomfortable. Uh, my wife and I are very sort of non-social, and the last three years with the pandemic only sort of magnified all of that. It was fully fine to be home and just playing chess and, and not being bothered by the requirements of social engagement, and suddenly everybody wanted to be a part of this, so... I think that's sort of an answer to your question it's obviously much more complex the funny part about it was that although the 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 win came on the 8th by the 10th and it was just two days later and a complete coincidence the ICCF reached out and wanted to know if I wanted to play I had just won the 32nd world championship but they wanted to know if I wanted to enter the 33rd Uh, one look from my wife convinced me that that probably wasn't a very good idea
0: so. Yeah, and the ICC being not the Internet Chess Club, but the International Correspondence Chess Federation. ICC. Chess Federation. Okay, thank you. And f- to give listeners a bit more context, by the way, I mentioned that I'm friendly with John. We actually live less than 15 minutes apart, so I've seen his incredible book and uh, stamp collection. But so, John, you're how old? Sixty-nine. 69, and John is retired from working at Princeton University, so if you're wondering how does he spend 12 to 14 hours a day (laughs) uh, playing correspondence chess, uh, that is how you worked in the IT department, correct, John? Worked in IT for 24 years. I was assistant VP for computing and
1: information technology for more than half of that, and in the latter half, I was coordinator of um, institutional communication.
0: Okay. And what you said about a a former colleague from Princeton wondering what does a human bring to the party in terms of these engine games, uh, what did you tell him? I've told him a
1: lot. Um, He's really worked on this very intently. Um, This is a fellow named Ed Tenner who has worked extensively in this area and is somewhat skeptical of the whole AI revolution. I confess that I don't feel the same way that he does um, I'm rambling a bit here, but there's this incredibly funny quote that was recorded in new and chess magazine, just in the last issue from me talking about how the best correspondent chess players in the world can overcome the machine, which is related to your question. And I did give that quote in a moment of euphoria after I had one, but the reality is I'm starting to wonder if, is it, is it okay to, to wonder if, if something that I personally said is wrong? Uh, the AI really is having a tremendous effect, and not just in chess, it's having an effect everywhere. We're in the news right now, they're talking about these bots that are writing kids' papers and how education's going to have to change. Um, our car, the taxis are being driven by people, and we don't even need the people anymore. I can see that happening in just a few years. So is this just a canary in the coal mine? Uh, is, is AI having a tremendous effect on chess to the point that humans do bring nothing to the party? I can safely say that I earned my way in. Uh, there was a semi-final round, what, about a decade ago? There was the candidates, and I certainly earned my way into the final. And there's an old saying that you can't win it if you're not in it, and I earned my way in. Uh, but I sure as heck got lucky. I'm sure you will be asking about that in the final round itself. Uh, the chess itself, everybody has retooled their repertoires around the engines. These neural net engines are an utter beast. Um, and it's now to the point that there are various openings that are just not going to be played because they take too much risk. I know we're going to continue to explore this, so I'm just giving you some a, a kind of general overview of where I think this conversation is probably likely to go.
0: Um, yeah, well, well, let's zoom out a little more for listeners before we continue, because I do think they'll be interested to hear what opening battlegrounds remain in these uh, high-level chess games held by computers but one thing we should say is so the tournament you're referring to is the world championship and as in uh classical chess there's a candidates tournament preceding it uh, then you get into the final and you had the you had shared first with the best tie breaks i believe correct for the Yes
1: i was i had finished with a plus 2 score
0: Yeah with a plus 2 score and so out of the um 136 games in the championship, 119 were draws. And as John said, uh, sometimes when you do win a game, um, it's not because someone hung a mate and won. Um, <laughs> it can sometimes be a some sort of um, lapse in um, keeping up with the move. Um, Like whose move it is in a game, if you time out, basically, that's a way that people often lose or they may make a mistake um, or there can be cheating. Um, Now, before we go on, John, so in the two games that you won, what were the story of those games? Uh, Again, I want to emphasize I should buy a lottery ticket as I I,
1: I tell you the story. Uh, One fellow dropped out um, and I don't know why and I don't think anybody does. I think he got sick. It was sort of in the age of COVID, so it's certainly possible that he... He came down with that. Um, the, the, the tragedy, and permit me to go on for a second because this is just astounding, um, about a week before he dropped out and resigned his games to his remaining competitors, and I was fortunate to be one of those folks, um, he had accepted a draw from another player. Um, so the other player who had accepted, offered the draw and had it accepted, was very upset because his personal chances had been virtually eliminated by the fact that he got a draw but other people won. And he turned around right after that debacle um, and promptly resigned his game in an even position to his countrymen so that his countrymen suddenly had some meaningful chances to compete with those of us who had been fortunate to get the point from the fellow who had gotten sick and dropped down. Um, About a year later, and it was about a year later, one of my opponents, and this this is the most astounding thing and why I should buy a lottery ticket, in a completely even position, hung a piece. It's just kind of unthinkable. I understand what happened. He was thinking well ahead. He knew what movie he was going to play, but instead of analyzing the move he was going to play because he already knew he was going to make it, he was analyzing the position one move hence, and that's the move that he played as opposed to the move that he should have. He hung a piece. He resigned instantly. And suddenly, how strange, I was put into a position where I was plus two and leading the field. And in a funny position that if all the other games were drawn, all the remaining games were drawn, I would become world champion. Um, having said that, I wanted the legitimacy of winning a real game. <laughs> and I was involved in a fabulous match against a fellow named Sergei Osipov from, from Russia. And I had a small advantage. The game itself is well worth everybody's time. It went 119 moves and certainly shows how much I wanted to win the game um, and, and give myself a... Uh, the cushion that I I think I deserved. Um, And unfortunately, it ended in a draw, but that game was astounding. There was one point, which is worth just mentioning, where the only idea left in the position, and it's well beyond the ability of the machine to see or forecast or plan, I had to get him to move his B pawn forward so that it would become weak. The problem was, could I get him to move his B pawn forward? There weren't going to be any pawn moves or captures, so I had to do this within a 50-move limit. I literally had a board, a whiteboard up on my, above my desk with the counting down (laughs) or counting up to the 50 move rule. Um, And I did get him to move his B pawn forward. The next step was to get him to move it one more time. I got him to move it the first time in 38 moves. If I could get him to move it one more square, I knew exactly where my pieces had to be. The rooks would transfer over to the G file and the king would head over to B1 and, and everything had a place, but I had to get him to move the pawn forward first and I couldn't quite do it. Yeah, and you, he defended really well
0: yeah and in a game like that there's been a lot of talk about sort of the change in how endgame uh, engines evaluate things of course when I got to interview uh, Matthew Sadler we discussed it and friend of the pod Nate Solon has written about how Stockfish in particular the um, what used to be a smaller advantage now is a bigger advantage probably because Stockfish is even better at winning one positions. But when you're trying to eke out something that's kind of on the border between a draw and a win, John, like what, what was the engine evaluation for, for the game that you describe, um, sure. from the it, championship? Stockfish had it at about zero,
1: roughly zero, between 0.28 and 0.32 for that 38 move period. Okay. Um, the, the challenge for a human is that uh, these runs were extensive they took long periods of time it involved obviously some very impressive hardware that i have running here um, but when you're running it you can have 16 17 20 lines and they all say it's 0.28 so the the common way of thinking about that is well if all the lines are 0.28 then very clearly this is there's a structural aspect to this that's drawish. I didn't believe that because I had a plan and I knew where my pieces needed to be and I knew what I wanted to happen to the pawn structure. <laughs> but I simply needed to make sure that I found a way through the morass of all these equivalent lines to pursue the plan that I wanted, which was in fact to force him to get his pawn up there. In order to get, for example, to get him to move the pawn, I had to get a bishop on c2, a queen on d1, the knight on c3, the king had to be on a certain square. All of this was rigorously worked out, and I spent just as much time working with the machine. Um, if I can get the pawn there, where do my pieces need to be? If I can get the pawn there, where do my pieces need to be? Is it always going to be possible to move the pieces and reconfigure them from where they are to where they're going without him getting any counterplay? Those are the kinds of considerations that are going on. People want to know, you know, what are you, you're spending 12 hours a day, <laughs> 14 hours a day for 12 years? What the heck are you doing? Um, that's what I was doing
0: <laughs> And I'm guessing I mean you do it because you love it right you find, you find it fascinating just trying to, to eke home this this tiny advantage
1: Yeah it's, it's sort of an ultimate challenge. I'm left firmly believing that there is still some hope for humans with the machines um, but not not in tactical positions and certainly not not meaningfully out of the opening. The key I believe is finding or finding opening variations. That lead to fixed pawn structures, and within those structures, allowing very long-term maneuvering along the lines of what I've just described.
0: Hmm. Um, and. And sorry, Jen, I had a follow up about hardware. We're going to be talking about software, and you may or may not be dodging my questions about software later. <laughs> but what can you say in terms of? I know you have a dedicated machine that you basically have running twenty four hours a day um, on a game when you have it going on. Uh, what sort of hardware? And I'm like, I'm not a um, not a huge computer person, so uh, be gentle in describing it. But what sort of hardware do you use? Actually, I have two. So uh, I have one that I dedicated for, to the Osopov
1: game. It was always running Ossipov at one position or another um, around the clock for an entire year. Um, and the other machine, which is essentially a mirror of the first one, it, it is outfitted in precisely the same way, has the same data, um, was working on everything else and, and helping with just problems of life and communicating with email and all the rest. Um, the machines themselves are solid. They are. They have a very, very, very um, good processor. You don't care about the numbers, but, I mean, it's something that, in terms of cost, is very expensive. Both of, both machines have enormously powerful processors, um, which I add, the real key these days the supply chain difficulties is simply getting hold of them. Because, in these cases, it's not buying a machine from IBM or Dell. You have to build your own um, in and order you to make have this work. To- I and have you have the capability? Helps, yes, we, we, we build our own machines here. Wow. The machines also have an enormous amount of memory. And the memory is there to store table bases um, in the memory so that they're not being called up off the disk. Um, the, both machines are outfitted that way. So the table bases themselves, in this case, six six-piece table bases, because I don't believe any home computer can have enough memory right now to run a seven. That has to be accessed from the outside. So, the six piece is loaded into memory with chess base then running
0: okay and for for listeners uh, not familiar, a table base is basically every position with six pieces or fewer on the board uh, there's an answer whether it's winning or losing in fact, every seven piece as well as John alludes to, but obviously the more pieces the more computational power required um, and they're working on eight piece table bases, right John
1: well <sighs> You know I didn't believe that seven piece table bases would be done in my lifetime, and I don't believe that eight piece therefore <laughs> would be done in my lifetime or frankly my children's lifetime. but there are a number of different implementations here that suggest that perhaps it's possible um okay
0: the one that another I rely follow on, up go ahead sorry sorry, another follow up you did allude to these machines being expensive. I'm sure listeners would would love to know how much just to give them context are you Are you willing to share that info, John? Yeah, these are six and seven thousand dollar machines, okay. Um. Honestly, it, it, even a bigger number wouldn't wouldn't have shocked me. Um. And John, I know since we're friends, I know you made some good investments in your younger years. I know you're you're in reasonably good financial shape. Um. But between the um, the time you spend on this and the expense, do does your is your wife fully supportive of uh this hobby? She's been amazing.
1: Uh, I could probably talk about her for the for the rest of the time, and maybe I even should. Uh, But yes, completely supportive in terms of everything. We've not been able to travel meaningfully for 10 years. We haven't gone out to dinner with friends for 10 years. We haven't done an awful lot of the things that most married couples would do. And I've got to tell you, she's just utterly thrilled about what's happened here. She now just sort of delights in calling herself Mrs. Dr. Grandmaster, <laughs> world champion. <at> um, <laughs> I forgot the doctor in the joke. intro. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, PhD
0: in history. I forgot to mention. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, well, that's great to hear. And do you think, like, I mean, the computers are so strong. If you went out to dinner, would would your results? I'm sure you've gotten questions like this before. Like, the game's <laughs> going to be a draw either way, right? <laughs> uh,
1: just. This was complete dedication. It's complete lunacy, I suppose. I'm certifiable. <laughs> but no, this, this was a, an all-out effort to try to do this. I even retired early because uh, I could. I was fortunate in that regard. Um, let's give a shout out here, please, to
0: Apple Computer. Yeah, um, you a, I wasn't going to bring it up, but, <laughs> I'm, sure, but I'm sure listeners w- would love to hear that story. So, so you bought Apple stock in, in what year?
1: I bought Apple in eighty four, eighty five. I bought a hundred shares at forty, and when it went down to twenty, I bought another hundred. Unbelievable! Those two hundred shares turned into ninety six hundred shares, I think. Um, from splits. Yeah, of course, and and that okay. meant that my kids went to good schools, and and uh, their educations got paid for from that original six thousand dollar investment. And so I'm very lucky, and that that also allowed me to retire early. And did you ever sell the shares? Along the way, you know, to pay for things, sure. But there's that old story about the guy who says he's rich, but he's
0: living in a hovel because he doesn't sell his shares. Uh, We weren't quite like that. (laughs) And what was your mindset? And, I mean, (laughs) not to derail this too much, but it's fascinating to me to to have the – I mean, it's a different kind of mental fortitude, but maybe not totally um, different from the sort of resilience required for uh, correspondence chess – did you have moments where you just wanted to take your chips off the table, and if so, like how did you you talk yourself out of it? okay, so
1: now you all understand just how certifiable I am. I never had that one not even wow for a, not even for a a second. It was get up in the morning, do the stuff and and my sleep patterns got interrupted too. I was getting up at three in the morning to work on this stuff and staying up till six and sleep didn't didn't matter when I slept, so i took te- I took naps when the machines were um at, at stages where they're, the, what they were doing weren't, weren't terribly important. And so all of life just got redefined by this endeavor.
0: Okay, and sorry, listeners, I got to derail this for like two more minutes about the Apple stock history. You can <laughs> fast forward if, if you need to. But so first of all, John, what was the original thesis when you when you bought the stock in 1984? Well, Your actually, thesis.
1: I, I had bought an Atari, uh, which is not Apple. I bought an Atari to work on my dissertation. Um, and while, along the way, one of my friends bought an Apple and I actually was spending more time working with his Apple than I was with my Atari. I thought the thing was just astounding. Um, I bought a a hundred share. I had some cash. I decided, what the heck? This seemed like the right thing to do. Okay. Um, and then somewhere along the line, somebody had explained that if your thesis, if you're happy with your, your thesis of, of why you bought it is correct. And the thing goes down buy some more. And so I did. And I'm glad I did.
0: And was this like a not a it was significant percentage of your net worth at the time, or we were not rich, <laughs> right? Okay, <laughs> I
1: was a graduate student in history at Michigan State University. For heaven's sakes, we we didn't have an awful lot. And then I, you know, I it's a long story, which your listeners probably don't want to hear about. But I somehow found my way from history into computing. So at the after I got my basically after I finished my my dissertation, um, I went to work not in history. I went to work at Byte Magazine in the computing and the uh, review department. I was the head of reviews for Byte magazine from 86 to 88 before I went to Princeton. and So I got um I was suddenly on the inside of everything that was happening at an extraordinary time in microcomputing. And so it was and uh, just an obvious an obvious thing to do in terms of Okay, and
0: and last Apple question, so, somewhat famously, the the company had a down period after Steve Jobs left, before he returned, before the invention of the iPhone. I'm sure you were still way up in the stock, but in, at a period like that, you weren't tempted to sell either? I was tempted to sell all the way along
1: the way, but I figured that's just going to ride this through. Wow. Uh, by the way, Apple wasn't the only, there were some miserable, su- miserable failures along the way. Um, other stuff chess podcast i bought a, a little solar outfit called ldk which i was convinced was backed by the good faith and credit of the chinese government it went under okay um but i also bought nvidia um at 13 and as stock adjusted i really bought it at three and you can see the price this morning it's just through the roof so wow I had, i've had some fun
0: amazing i, I know okay. the
1: technology and i've i've you know if i buy something it's just good advice for everybody. If you're, if you're a user and you think something is astounding, uh, buy some shares.
0: What ab- and <laughs> Sorry, I can't resist. And what about the valuation? Does it, does that, I mean, is it just sort of, if it's a growing company, that's not, like, are you concerned with the valuation at the time if you see a powerhouse product or not especially?
1: Not especially. I mean, NVIDIA, I assumed, it was going to be at the forefront of the AI revolution. And I saw that pretty early on.
0: Great. Um, okay. Originally, the
1: thesis had to do with, with, bit, with Bitcoin and the rest, but uh, right now, okay. if, if, if everybody's hypothesis is that AI is taking over chess, and frankly, everything else for that matter, um, then put your money to work um, in, the, in the one company that's going to be responsible for providing the cycles for AI
0: fascinating stuff maybe we'll try to maybe we'll uh, we'll save a bit more stock advice for the very end but we got to bring it back to chess john but first we're gonna so next up listeners i'm going to be asking john about the opening battlegrounds uh, amongst the top engines but first we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. AimChess has an algorithm that gathers your games from the major sites like Chess.com and Leechess, and gives you actionable intel based on the patterns it detects. It can be how you do with certain openings, what aspects of the game you excel at versus need work at, and guess what? AimChess has a new feature that you should check out. Right now, just in time for the new year, you can check out your year in review for 2022. You just enter your username and it gives you uh, how many hours you spent chess how many games you played how you did with various openings lots of fun facts uh, that the algorithm is able to gather so be sure to check out aimchess.com if you decide to try out subscribing use the code perpetual30 to save 30 percent. you can also use the link in the show description to try out aimchess.com You should know what that sound means. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes a reality. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. So whether you're selling chess courses, chess boards, or something totally unrelated to chess, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. It covers every sales channel, whether it's in-person point of sale system or an all-in-one e-commerce platform. Platform. It even lets you sell across social media like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, packed with industry leading tools ready to ignite your growth. It gives you complete control over your business. And thanks to 24 7 help and an extensive course library, Shopify is there to help you every step of the way what's incredible to me about shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take it to the next level so now it's your turn to get serious about selling to shopify so sign up for one dollar a month trial period shopify.com slash chess by using the code chess you know that they came from perpetual chess so that's shopify.com to take your business to the next level today and we are back so as john alluded to the openings of course as they have in elite over the board chess have taken a turn where someone like magnus at times might look for something less theoretical uh, in order to gain an edge and as he alluded to he that can often be the case in engines as well but why don't we start big picture john i'll name a few openings and you tell me if engines can play them. Um, let's, like, if, you, if you're likely to see it in an ICCF World Championship these days. Um, I'm a Sicilian player. It's close to my heart. Let's start with the Nidorf. How's the Nidorf holding up? Holding up fine. Oh, good. I, I actually it's, didn't it's think actually it was. It's holding up
1: fine. There's the one variation that is just about really tough to beat. Anybody who beats it's going to become famous is in the Bishop E3 line of the Nidorf with an early H5 by Black. And busting that down will make any, if someone busts that down, they're going to become famous. I keep getting it and getting it. And I'm still convinced that there's a
0: way to beat the thing, and I
1: I have failed.
0: Interesting. So, okay, because you don't see it. I feel like it's lost a little bit of its luster in OTB elite chess, but it's st- it's still on firm ground. I think theoretically, the border,
1: that would be pretty hard to defend. So okay, that's that. probably, and there are easier places to defend. Now you. Keep in mind, of course, I grew up and played the Hedgehog early on, but I don't any longer because I don't think that holds up at this level of play. And so I switched over to the Sveshnikov. And it's still okay? It's still pretty much okay, but I find now, as I'm getting older, that the easier way to achieve a draw, and after all, on the black side, that's all I care about. I just want to draw. I'm not going to win a game with black anymore. I used to win all the time. can't anymore. So now I've I've begun um, answering E4 with E5.
0: Okay. Yeah, as has the, and taking a quick draw. <laughs> and and what's the most testing line against the Sveshnikov? Uh, well, the open lines with d4 are drawn.
1: Oh, Could interesting. Isn't that isn't that just so an extraordinary a Rosalimo. statement to be able to make. Wow. Um and so the the key, of course, are the Rasalimo lines with bishop b5, and there are a couple in there that are actually interesting.
0: Huh. I'll quiz you further as a Sicilian player um, off the record. Um, and <laughs> against D4, what are the most commonly seen uh, replies? Semi-Slav is dominating, but not what I played. I've been, nobody
1: allows the, the, the Nimzo-Indian, which is gives black decent play, actually. Um, and so almost all the games head over to knight F3 as opposed to knight C3 on move three. And I've been playing Queen's Indians, which is, It's just a a very solid way of again getting a draw with a little bit of dynamic play in some of the lines not that i've i can ever imagine winning but i'm very Mm -hmm. comfortable in every single one of those and they all lead to evaluations from the machines that are flat
0: okay and in terms of like one e4 as white one e4 versus one d4 versus one knight f3 is are things trending in any particular direction
1: they're all to draw draws, which is why, <laughs> which is why the best players are so frustrated. That they're they're everybody's looking for an advantage someplace, and why, you know, the, the most dominant response to e4 again is e5. And, and I knew that I couldn't play knight f3 because the the Petrov is drawn, um, the Roy Lopez is drawn, either the Berlin or the Marshall. There's nothing there, folks. Sorry. Uh, over the board, there's still a lot of play and a lot of hope. And you can go in there and be booked up and do reasonably well. But correspondence has changed. So I wound up playing the Vienna, uh, which obviously has a more of a drawing, drawish reputation. But I settled on the, the Gleck variation of the Vienna, which is e4, e5, knight c3, knight f6, g3. First of all, if they don't play knight f6 on move 2, I'm going to get an advantage. Because the, the uh, King's Gambit decline lines um, and and that whole ilk, those are slightly in White's favor, and I'd be thrilled to be able to go there. But against 9c3, 9f6, g3, the point of that is, of course, as I indicated before, I want to keep as many pieces on the board as possible. And in that line, the bishop on g2 winds up being a bit of a monster later on, especially if I can find a way to get his light square, Black's light squared bishop. But the pieces remain on the board, and I get to maneuver within a fixed structure for a very long time as... Um, suggested by the game I had against Ossipov, which, again, went more than 100 moves.
0: And I don't know much about the Vienna, John. I don't even... Like, what's the main reply after... So E4, E5, Knight C3, Knight F6, G3. Is is D5 the main reply? What does Black play?
1: Yeah, D5 is one of the main replies. Uh,
0: That leads to... uh, Gives the game a completely different character.
1: Um, It gets taken... Knight takes, knight c3, knight takes, b takes. The b-file opens up for rook b1 with an active rook. And there's some interesting timing issues that I've been exploring there. So I'm completely okay with the idea of going there. And again, I've given up the one exchange. But there's still enough play left, in fact, to justify it. And the evaluations in the engines that I care about are not 0.00, which is thrilling. If they don't go for that, if they go for the bishop c5 lines, then white has just a very, very, very patient and slow buildup with him. It was like, I'm a castling king side and I'm playing h3, king h2. I'm going to break with d3 and f4. And the whole idea is that if black's king's on the king side, it's going to be f4, f5, and there's just a pawn rush. Spassky blew somebody out in that line. So one of the beauties of this line, I should add, is that a lot of the games and a lot of the analysis is old. And I have a large library. Mm -hmm. So what I did with some of the key games was literally to go back to the original sources and see what the players, the individual players had to say about some of those early games. That was exciting. Slow, but it's fun.
0: And, and any other opening battlegrounds? Um, Do you see the English much? One C4?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, C4, E5 is
0: drawn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm noticing a
1: pattern here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's scary to be able to just sit here and your friend and just to say, you know, this line is a draw. We're move one, move two, and, and there's nothing there. Um, so one of the interesting things worth mentioning here is that there's a, a new Chinese database. Um, and it's assembled by all the neural net technology. And what they've done is it's about a billion game fragments. And they have literally assembled evaluations of everything. And you can go in there and instantly compare your personal um, opening repertoire to what it is that they recommend and make sure that what you're playing is not suboptimal. And that really leads to a whole body of discussion. So what in fact is a suboptimal opening and why should I avoid it? In the old days, going back 20, 30, 40 years, people simply, in correspondence, they simply played the openings that they loved, taught, that they were taught, that they think over the board. And if there were openings that were had some slight inaccuracies or was what I call suboptimal play, they'd still play it because it was fun. It was who they are. It's an indication of their character. Um, that's been drummed out of every correspondence player at this point. People who played – there was one game, simply one, um, that involved – um, uh, one game that involved a suboptimal opening in the entire world final somebody played the Bononi with Black and they got <laughs> shout destroyed shout out to the Bononi, all right and they got destroyed <laughs> and that was literally the only single game in the entire event in which somebody actually beat somebody with real moves and because they, but they'd still made this horrible mistake. And I was left saying to myself, why didn't they play the Benoni against me? Right. <laughs> I would have destroyed it too.
0: What line was uh, what, I mean, I know there's plenty of ways for white to get an appreciable edge, but what line was, uh was played against it?
1: I don't recall off the top of my head. Okay. I'll have checked. to look it that was, up. That's, <laughs> that's
0: awesome. hilarious. That's as, a, as a former Benoni player, I, I can, uh, I can relate to that. Uh, <laughs> and, and John, I gather that you prefer correspondence chess to both online blitz and OTB chess. Um, I, is it safe to infer that? Yes, of course. And yeah, why? Yeah. What What, what uh, do you prefer uh, about it? This, 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 this is easy. Uh,
1: so, my heaven. Over the board, there's a kid who shows up and he's picking his nose or he's... And, and wiping against his jacket, or he's coughing right now, which would drive me crazy. Or he's just carrying on at the board and jumping up and down and swiveling in his chair. And I hate all of that. I okay. just hate all of that. There's an aspect to this. And there is so much stress associated with playing a game in five hours. Um, that my head starts, my temples start to pound, and, and I'm uncomfortable. I haven't gotten enough sleep, and so I'm tired. You know, if I in correspondence, if I'm tired, I'll take a nap.
0: right although it sounds like you don't take a lot of naps (laughs) i don't
1: don't know i take them at odd hours but the fact is that i can and that changes everything so the the stress component that you'd imagine that was there is just not there there's just no stress with the result that in 12 years i think i made i I, I like to tell people i didn't make any mistakes that's just not true but i made i made only a, a small handful most of the moves were fully accurate
0: and if you do make a mistake. Um, you know, you mentioned the person hanging a piece earlier, um, by sending the move they were planning on playing in the second move. I mean, that's something plenty of us, including me have done over the board. Um, but what would be the nature of a mistake that you might make, John? If uh,
1: I try to learn from them, I've made plenty in my lifetime, some doozies. So I wind up having a very mundane 25 step procedure before I make a move that, actually make sure that the you know all the moves are made through a server so you can bring the, the, the position up on the screen and also bring it up separately on chess space and I compare like where's Waldo? Is, are these positions they should be identical before I make the move and you can instantly see that they are. I'm just not prepared to make those kinds those kinds of mistakes, notational errors or some administrative snafu. Um, there also there's a time element to all of this. You wouldn't imagine is there but it is um, just not prepared to make those kinds of mistakes and it's really hard for me almost impossible for me to understand how anybody at this level could have made one so there was one in the whole tournament and amaz- amazing to say I was the beneficiary mm-hmm. but no I, I don't allow myself to do that so as part of the actual decision making process I run the I know exactly in almost every position I know what move I'm going to play but I still run it in a variety of engines, I checked databases, and the key step in all of this, which I don't mind talking about, because it's a chess base, it's really a chess, more of a chess base question. But in any structure, I'm fully aware of every game that's been played that reached that structure or a similar structure, and I know the games intimately. I know what plans were used,
0: I know what worked, I know what failed. So, but when you do make a mistake, is it related to the horizon effect or w- what's the issue?
1: Um, the last mistake I made was 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't remember.
0: This is correspondence chess only. I assume, I assume you've, you made some, you've picked made the wrong a- thing for dinner at some point or something like that. Oh, those, but. yeah,
1: of course. <laughs> and actually, I, I tell my friends in life, you make mistakes all the time and I cut myself some slack. Right. I don't get upset with myself until I make the sixth mistake in a day, um, but that's not true for correspondence chess. The the quotient there is much smaller.
0: Okay. All right. Well, John, we've got some great questions from Patreon supporters of the podcast. Uh, those who support the pod via Patreon can submit questions for the guests. Um, so let's start with this one by Wayne Inkpen, who writes. He says. Thanks so much for the two books you wrote on the use of chess base. A few weeks ago, I prepaid for a chessable lecture that GM Sadler will be delivering this month on the use of chess engines, and he says he'd be happy to part with his hard-earned dollars to explain use to see you explain the advanced uses of chess base. And he's wondering if you would ever do something like that.
1: I would love to do that. I think that would be awesome. Um, especially since I just got I started using version 17 and the books themselves don't cover some of those uses. Right. And it is um, a real step forward for chess space. And it deserves it deserves a, they deserve a, a significant pat on the back for what they've done. They've really made meaningful analysis so easy. Um, and I think that even a casual glance at the main analysis screen that ChessBase now uses would convince everybody to go out and get it. I don't work for them, so this is, sounds like a commercial. Um, I, I, I worked for them when ChessBase was on version 4. <laughs> that was a very long time ago, more than 20 years. Um, this is This is an astounding product.
0: Yeah, okay now we sense. should say for for casual listeners because chess space is not inexpensive so i just don't want i don't want someone rated you know 900 to run yeah. out and buy it necessarily it yeah it's best for advanced uses i would i mean to me it's like around 1800 is when its efficacy really starts to increase and then it yeah. continues to increase the higher level stuff that you're doing um but w- in, in as simple as terms as possible, John, Like w- what has improved? Because I'm a longtime chess-based customer, but I haven't, for example, upgraded to the new version.
1: So you put an engine on in the current program, in version 17, and I have three lines. And you're accustomed to what that looks like. So it, it's analyzing away. It tells you that Stockfish 15.1 is working away at this here, are the three lines. And it tells you the certain depth and there's certain evaluation. But far more than that, it will tell you, if you're white, what black's thread is. In English, wow. It like in a sentence? You, in a sentence. It will tell you what it is that white's plans are in the main lines, in a sentence or two or three. It literally spells this out. Um, suddenly, and, and you might say, well, gosh, it's going to be inaccurate. It's going to be, <laughs> it's just it's just a gimmick. It's not a gimmick. In fact, it, it really replicates the kind of thought pattern that that any master is going to have that is exactly what the masters are thinking while this thing is going on and it just does the work for you wow That's both good and bad of course but you know if your opponents have this (laughs) (laughs) you need to have it too
0: wow that that's impressive because i know there's been different companies working on that sort of technology um uh that so I mean, but that to me, makes it sound like maybe it does have broader use for um even lower rated players
1: well, where this was really fun is that they have this is this is more eye candy, and it's not a reason to go out and shell out one hundred and eighty dollars on a product. but they have a new function called beauty. And beauty, of course, is in the eye of the beholder, but you can literally, if you have a database of your own games, or Petrosian's games, or somebody's games, you can click one button and it will go out and find Petrosian's beautiful games. Well, what exactly does that mean? So I decided to run this against my games, because I know my games, and I know which ones I think are really kind of fun. And it agreed with me. It thought that the games that I thought were fun really were fun, but there were still surprises. It thought that every game that I'd lost was beautiful. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I didn't like that especially, but it was sort of interesting to think about. But it also identified a handful, five or six of my games that were that said they were beautiful, and I, I'd forgotten about them. And it was really fun to go back and see what is it that about these these obscure games that the machine likes. And and I said, wow, this is sort of neat. So I integrated some of those those games, frankly, into my teaching because it was sort of new to me and fun for the kids.
0: That sounds pretty cool. All right. You might I know you're not a chess based employee, but you might have um you might have um in, encouraged me to upgrade. Although I, I have to say, John, and I've said this before on the podcast, I mean, one reason that I appreciate your book, although as you say, it's you know, it doesn't update with every chess cycle is I, I I generally have found chess base uh, not to be as user-friendly as I might wish. And that's part of the reason I'm always a little despite its immense power and despite its like many Cool features. I'm always a bit circumspect in recommending it, especially for um, yeah. for newer players. But
1: I understand. That's actually why I wrote the book.
0: Yeah, because exactly. the user manual wasn't.
1: Well, I didn't think it was very good. Yeah, um, and I wanted to. I wanted to see if I could make the, the power of this product um, more accessible to to people who would really benefit from it. But you're right. It's not. It's not at all a reasonable approach for people rated under 1500. I don't think. I do ask my students to buy it just because I'm sending all the homework home in chess-based format, and so they need to have something, either a reader or chess base or something. The, the unfairness of this is obvious, and that is it's hard enough to become a good chess player, but now I also need to have a computing environment, and I have to be able to run this thing. Right, That's, that's tough. Now, two skills are required, and that cuts into the population of people who are going to be able to love and improve this game.
0: Yeah, yeah, fair point. All right, well, John, we got some engine-related questions coming next, but we do need to take one more break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back, uh, and then John's going to reveal all the engines that he <laughs> uses. <laughs> okay, I think so. Perpetual Chess is proud, as always, to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is known for their Move Trainer technology, which utilizes spaced repetition to help you remember tactical patterns and opening sequences. They have a huge library of courses for whatever aspect of your game you want to work on. Some of their new courses include a course on the Tarash Defense to D4, which is a good choice if you're looking for a dynamic opening against one D4. It's by Super Grandmaster Jordan Von Forrest. Speaking of Super Grandmaster... Masters, former world champion and legendary trainer Rustam Kazimjanov has a course out on the C3 Sicilian. If you're newer to chess, be sure to check out Friend of the Pod. I am Andres Toth's 1D4 for beginners. And of course, they've got tactics courses too. They have stuff you can check out for free. So if you have not already, make sure you go to chessable.com and keep an eye on their ever-growing supply of quality chess courses. And we are back. And a uh, friend of the podcast, Han Shu, has as is common for Han written in with some very thoughtful questions. Um, so we'll begin with the one that John has told me he will probably dodge, which is, is John willing to share whether you use Stockfish for correspondence chess, or if you use a specific Stockfish clone like Core Chess?
1: Yeah. Uh, what I told Ben before the interview, this is a bit like asking McDonald's uh, to share the recipe for the secret sauce. <laughs> um, and mind you, it's, that's actually a good analogy because there are people who've um, reverse engineered the secret sauce and it wouldn't be hard to reverse engineer what I'm doing. Um, I think it's safe to say that Stockfish 15.1, let me put it this way, is a monster. Um, and you can go to some extremes to try to improve upon its output as I try to do, and I don't want to go into the things that I've done to sort of even improve it further. But the reality is 15.1 is a significant step forward over even version 15. It's free to download, so there's that. And the reason that it's better is that you can now begin to think about running it on a laptop without overheating the equipment. Um, wow. 15 was running hot on even my even my servers, let alone a laptop. I think it could have brought a laptop down without that, that, uh, that much effort. Uh, 15.1 is a very significant step forward. So if you were reluctant to use it because you didn't want to hurt your hardware, um, you can consider. I don't want to be responsible if anybody runs 15.1 and and their laptops overheat. Um, but the the key here, of course, is that when you're running 15.1 and you have a very powerful machine, don't run it at full, at the full um, core limit. So for, I could run it. I could run my engines at 32 core, but I don't. I crank it way down twenty four so that I'm leaving room for uh, other things that might be operating in the background the operating system other applications that may pop up from time to time um, it's really important to crank it down and and also to, frankly given the nature of this especially if you're running some of these runs go overnight some of these runs go four or five days, and it's really important to monitor the temperature of your system and to know what the limits of your system are so that if it's If the system's gonna shut off at 90 degrees centigrade, you should know that. And if this thing's running at 84, 85, 86, 87, um, it's running too hot and you should crank down the demands upon it by limiting the number of cores. I'm sorry if that sounds technical, but I don't want anybody to run into hardware issues. Okay,
0: and you generally run your system overnight, John?
1: Usually, if if there are key runs, I've been known to run things for, for two, three, four weeks.
0: And does that impact your electric bill
1: I think I have the highest we have the highest electric bill in Mercer County
0: has um, anyone come looking for like marijuana plants on your roof or I guess now <laughs> I guess now that's legal so maybe you don't have to worry about it anymore but I'm just curious
1: no no we haven't had police come by I mean, that's
0: good <laughs> they will be now <laughs> right <laughs> And they're not going to believe this chess engine story for a second. <laughs> All right, well, it's... But a cool, um, wide, cool way to hide what's really going on here. Right, exactly. Um, and is Stockfish 15.1, is it incorporating neural nets as, as well as sort of the more brute force calculation?
1: Yes, it is a neural net engine. Um, and as such, is an utter monster. Um, neural nets are clearly the way this is going. The old brute force engines had a horizon effect that is well discussed and well understood, uh, that no matter how much processing power you were going to throw at a brute force engine, there was always a point where it just simply wasn't going to see stuff. Um, you came over to the house actually on, uh, last week and I showed you a game where, the and, and it was extraordinary, that the, the engine just simply didn't find the right move because there was a, a nested combination four, five, or six moves later that the engine just discounted it just didn't want to look at it when you force the engine to actually look at the combination it says oh this is really good but it wasn't going to look at it by itself
0: and this is this this is is even on stockfish 15.1
1: this is true on all of them Mm -hmm. stockfish gets there more quickly um than those brute force those old brute force engines but it still takes a while and i think that the, the neatest advertisement for humanity here is that a human sees this combination if a human thinks about it and takes it seriously the human's going to see the combination way before the computer does and that flies in the face of what we've come to believe about these engines that they think that they see these combinations and all tactics far faster than we do which is not always true which is useful to know again if you throw the the engine into a position where it has to consider this combination it sees it instantly but there's something about the coding, and I don't know what that is. It's just useful to, to, to mention it because it just discounts it. And I think somewhere in there, there's coding that says, if something looks like it's minus three, I'm not going to spend a lot of time and resources looking at something that's minus three because I'm wasting electricity here. I'm wasting the time of the engine. I'm just going to look at plausible lines. Um, and that approach, while appreciated 98% of the time, tends to miss the really cool stuff
0: yeah and for listeners it 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 was what john alluded to the line he showed me was pretty cool so maybe at some point john and i will make some some bonus content on youtube uh since this is audio only showing the idea he refers to um but certainly if you read um you know if you're familiar with the work of matthew sadler you do see the occasional example of stuff that uh the the engine misses but it is fascinating. Um, so Han has a couple other questions. Let's get, let's get to the next one, which is, given the high draw rate uh, of correspondence chess, it's been suggested to prescribe the opening like they do in the Top Chess Engine Championship. These positions can be quite unbalanced, like point, plus 0.8 for white. And the question is, who scores best over a pair of games? So both you would play it from both sides. Uh, he's wondering what you think of that as a potential way to combat the course, the correspondence Championship. Sounds awesome. You that do it, like okay. a really,
1: really good idea. There are other ideas that are emerging, um, and not fish random, but the idea that the end of the game is not going to be evaluated as a draw if one side's up a pawn, or somebody delivers a perpetual check, or that kind of thing, that different kinds of endings are not going to be evaluated as .5. But if you're down two pawns and you deliver a perpetual, maybe you get 0.4, that kind of thing. And that change by itself would also have a monstrous and potentially interesting effect on the opening repertoires that are being used by folks. The Marshall, for example, the way I go into our Marshall gambit, I have a draw, but I'm down a pawn. How annoying. I'm going to win this game. I'm I'm up a pawn, but there's no way to win. But knowing that if I'm up a pawn at the end, I'm going to get 0.55 as opposed to 0.5. That would eliminate the Marshall. Hell, my goodness.
0: <laughs> um, I don't know. I prefer Han's idea. I mean, uh, it's not really his idea, but I prefer the the, the tekec, uh format.
1: Sure. No, the, the real point of all, that requires a lot more time, of course, but the real point of his question is that something has to happen. Okay. Because the status quo is not tenable.
0: The yeah, status and quo you-
1: is... Is uh, we're going to have the, the we're now in the middle of the world final, the thirty third. And it's entirely with entirely plausible that every game would be drawn.
0: Yeah. Um and are there discussions about changing things? Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um Okay, next question from Han. Last question from Han is With every chess player having access to the strongest engine, top chess players have changed their strategy for opening preparation. This we discussed a bit earlier. They take calculated risk looking for lines that might not be the first choice of the engine, but lead to unbalanced positions where a human might err, where superior knowledge is important and where the risk of losing is still low. Uh, Han cites the game Dubov-Karyak in in the Russian championship 2020. Um, So I'll, I'll link to that for listeners who want to check it out. And, you uh, you might have already answered this, actually, but Han asks, what is the equivalent strategy in correspondence chess? Is that what you were referring to earlier in locked pawn structures? like? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, the, the key for me was always Petrosian and some of his wins. And if you're looking for a game that had a tremendous influence on me, it was Yopen, J-O-P-P-E-N, against Petrosian from sometime in the 50s. Um, and the last 20 moves of this game had an astounding impact on my thinking, partly because Petrosian saw the whole thing in milliseconds. It's complex. There is a, a rook trade. There's an improvement of the bishop. There's a reposting of the knight. There's a reposting of the king at the end. He just saw the whole thing. This method of, I, I liken it, frankly, to a Chinese puzzle box. I don't know if you've seen these things. There are these rectangular boxes, and if you shake them, there's something rattling on the inside. It's a coin. It's actually a worthless coin. That's from, The point is, how do I get to it? And if I've never done this before, it takes forever. I'm going to slide this, slide this, but it has to be done in a certain order. I have to slide this first, then I have to slide this, then I have to move this up, and all the rest. After you've had a lot of experience with Chinese puzzle boxes, you can go zoom, 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 and get to the coin. But if you have no experience, it becomes a monstrous thing. Petrosian used to see this method in a certain order. He would see it instantly. And to bring it back to your question, I think that what's happening with some of the best players on the planet, and certainly at the correspondence level, is that they have combed the entire opening book. That's not immodest. It's just true. They're combing the entire opening book looking for opportunities to pursue this method. Um, There is a, a really cool example. Two more thoughts. One with regard to Carlson himself, that he actually, you can reverse engineer any of these players. He certainly can be. You take all of his games and you take a look at where he's going consistently and and then pose the simple question, why why did he want to come to this position? It doesn't look very good for him. And then the more he played it six times, he won four play over the games. you'll see exactly why it is that he went there six times, because there's a cool idea lurking in the position that just destroys the other player. And that's why he was able to win. These are not accidents. They're not just happening sporadically over the board. Um, They're the culmination of an immense amount of preparation which is just obvious. So, um, yes. First of all, the correspondence game and the neural net engines are having an immense impact on over-the-board chess and pointing the way toward innovations and the rest. When a correspondence player, just as an example, there is a free database of correspondence games at ICCF.com. It's fully free. It's the Games Archive. You do have to join. Joining is free. And then 24 hours later, you get access to the Game Archive. Um, Correspondence players and the best grandmasters in the world swear that this is the finest database available out there any time for any purpose. And they have somebody on their team downloading the games at the beginning of every month, the games from the month before. I do too. And if there are wins in there, they, they usually reflect, they often reflect perhaps, somebody got sick, somebody hung a piece, no. But there are also on occasion some novelties. And those novelties are extremely interesting and useful. If there are novelties in lines that you love, you should be aware of them. When I pulled off my novelty against Lobanov, this was the Russian Correspondence Chess Champ, this was three years ago, um, with this incredibly cool move, I sent it off to uh, Peter Nielsen, who was Magnus II, and and he thanked me for it. And then about six months later, I got back a note from, from him saying, take a look at this. And it was Vishy Anand, who I personally regard as a hero, as the best prepared person in the history of the planet in any sport at any time, but he had gotten to the exact same position and he'd missed the novelty.
0: Shockable, so he, it could have been played against them. No, he could have played it. He ah, actually okay. Missed
1: the, missed the, the new idea, which is astounding because there aren't that many opportunities in the modern game for a shocking win, and here he had that chance. So the point is that there is an immense amount of work that has to be done. There are databases that do make it a little bit easier, but this is the, this is the nature of the modern game and what's happening. Some people don't like the sound of that because again, it combined these are great players they have tremendous imagination and an intuitive sense but they're also required to do all this technical work They i have teams to do it of course but that work is being done and they're not they're not entering these tournaments unprepared they are they're putting in a monstrous amount of preparation time
0: it's yeah it's fascinating um and you, you may have just answered this question but we do have one more listener question uh rory lopes uh f- all the way from Brazil, actually, um, he had sent two questions, but one of them we've already answered. So, so the second one is: In your opinion, what are the biggest contributions of correspondence chess to the game currently? And I ask it now because I do feel like it's probably what we were just discussing.
1: Yeah, I think it's the methodology; it's an approach to the game. Um, you know, I I'm going to change the question slightly, um, but I, I feel my mind is headed in a certain direction here and it's it's going to seem a little immodest and I apologize for that in advance, but you know, in my great predecessors, Gary Kasparov put forth a, a hypothesis that every world champion brought something new to the game. Um, if that's also true for correspondence chess, um, and in this case it's not just me, but the contribution of the best players is finding kind of an effective interface between human reasoning and all that high, high performance computing. Um, We have to get rid of our suboptimal choices, for example, which we don't like to do as humans. Uh, We have to make sure that we don't play that favorite opening from our youth. For me, it's the consensual, because if I do that, I'm risking a loss. Um, With white day, the key, and I think this is finding its way over to the -the board game at the highest levels, the key is finding variations that lead to fixed pawn structures with the possibility of that long-term maneuvering I talked about. Um, even if the engine evaluations are 0.00, you can maneuver here for 20 and 30 moves. And that's what happened, for example, in the OSPOP game. I was 0.00 early and it wound up being 0.3 with the possibility of some very interesting maneuvering and, and with a, a far more, a far happier result than I wound up getting. Um, you know, we're fighting against our opponents with their human weaknesses. We're fighting against computers which are not always as prescient as we think they're, they're likely to be we're fighting against ourselves we're fighting against our own machines which don't ex- always provide the clarity that we expect from them um very poetic on there
0: no I, <laughs> I i like it and that made that makes me think of what you mentioned earlier that you had like 24 or 25 things that you run through before you uh make a move do you have a um do you actually have a checklist or do you just do is it like a mental checklist?
1: It's a mental checklist. Okay. Um but it's permanently etched in there and, and, and it's all boring. You'd say what what are the what are the top ten things or something like that? Actually I put together a top ten list for uh, the American Chess Magazine, which is coming out really soon. Um and I think it's probably worthwhile to note what the top two are, but they, they don't answer your question. I apologize. My, my mind is just twisting in the wind here. <laughs> uh, the key, in fact, is to make sure you have a, uh, an in-home generator so if the power goes out, as it often does in our neighborhood, <laughs> the, the machines will still run, and the, the other is to have a, an understanding life. But the in terms of the things that I actually do, um, it they're all geared toward things that I've done. I've made mistakes in the past. And I don't ever. I, it's bad enough to make one mistake. It's quite quite another to to make it again. That would be okay. ridiculous.
0: Um, let's ask about a few more openings, John, and then we got sure. a couple more topics. Um, if if you're okay with it. Um, so, like the French and the Caro. Do you ever see those? Um, the, and never will again. Wow, poor French and Caro. <laughs> uh.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I did see. I saw French in the candidates, and I got yeah.
0: Yeah, it's so. a nice game. And what are and, the most testing lines? Is uh, the, is it the advance against the Caro? Yes, it's the advanced against the Caro and then the French. Um,
1: the Black's almost certainly going to play the Morozevich line with an early a six b five, and there are a lot of ideas there for White, and it is fraught with danger. That whole structure is hanging
0: by a thread. So. This is three knight c3, or what is why, like, against the French? Yes. Okay. knight c3, knight f6, etc. And, you know, over the board, um, I've
1: always played bishop to g5 there with the idea that if he plays the classical with bishop e7, e5, and I'm trading off my bad dark squared bishop for his good one. Oh, boy, it's like magic. This is cool. It turns out that in the correspondence game, I, I just want to hold on to all of my pieces. So I play e5 as opposed to bishop g5, keep all the pieces on the board and head into okay. the rozovich line and, and there against, plenty sorry. Of
0: lines sorry sorry just wanted to pick your brain on a couple more openings so against d4 you mentioned uh the semislav earlier um or and the nimzo so no one plays into the nimzo um w- what about stuff like the queen's gambit accepted the queen's gambit declined um
1: the slav is the is the approach there that's that's normally made. Queen's Gambit with the bad bishop is very
0: French-like. Oh, makes sense. Um, okay. All right. Well, last topic. I think John uh, doing a major pivot is um, your your chess book collection. You've, it took you it took you a while to come up with a number, but when when I last saw you, you felt it was safe to say you have over five thousand books. You also have. Uh, what you believe to be, and I don't doubt you, the uh, largest chess stamp collection in the world. Um, so I'm curious how you got into that. And when when was there a moment with chess books where you went from like, I have a bunch of these to I'm collecting these?
1: Well, I started in a, in a fun way. I got very sick when I was in fourth grade, um, 10 years old, something like that. I got mono. Um, and my dad said, well, you're going to be in bed for a while. So what would you like to pass the time? And I said, could you get me a chess book? <laughs> so he brought me home a chess book, and then a week later he came back. It was I distinctly remember it was Reuben Fine's Great Moments in Modern Chess. It's a big fat book full of games. Good, good for my dad, he picked well. Um, and he came back in a week later and said, "How are you doing with that chess book?" And I said, "Well, actually, I finished it." He said, "Really?" And I started telling him about all the games. And after that, he started bringing me a book every week. It sounds um, like your dad was a chess player. He was a bridge player actually, but oh wow, he appreciated the fact that games were being played and it's useful and, and that I was reading books. And I think that that's, yeah. So so that's how it all started. I, I would tell your readers, your listeners, that, that the key is not how many books you have, it's how many you read. <laughs> yes, um, amen. You can have a huge collection and if you don't read them, there's no point in having them. Um, and it doesn't even matter. You could say, well, what's your favorite book? And all the rest, it doesn't really matter if... You, my favorite book may not be your favorite book, but the point is to, to read them from time to time. Now, the real key for me personally is that I don't have an awful lot of opening books, which may come as a surprise. Because if, I, if there's an opening that occurs over the board, I'll, I'll make my own with chess base and the rest, and I can do so very quickly. Um, the opening books are dated the moment they're printed. If I'm going to buy an opening book, and this happened, there was a book by Catronius on the Seveshnikov, which was near and dear to my heart, and I was playing it and all the rest. I didn't buy it to see what his recommendations were. And he's an incredibly strong player, Greek champion, and a, and a very good writer. I bought it to see if there were any mistakes in the book. It was one, just one. And I got to use that against an opponent who took the book as sort of his Bible and just played right into the mistake. So this can happen. And it's a lot of time and a lot of effort to do this, but that's the reason for
0: But what's the advantage? What's the advantage since you're playing correspondence? What's the advantage of knowing in advance that they might make this mistake as opposed to just you're going to encounter it? If they make it, they make it and you'll have your engine. Is it because it gives you more time?
1: I I was just fully aware that the mistake was lurking out there in the mainline in this recommendation. And I just pursued my variations accordingly, hoping. You know, you have to they you're not going to win a game if they don't make a mistake and here was an obvious place where the mistake might occur and it did okay and, and it did so it's just it's just another way of this is i just concluded this is a worthy try against this particular opponent the fun part about this guy um i should i won't mention his name cuz i don't want to embarrass anybody here but i had played against him once before and he played a sicilian dragon which is also on the do not play list
0: yeah no surprise um, there
1: and i beat him and he gave up the dragon and now he played a sveshnikov and he lost. And I got paired against him just a year or two ago in the Spanish Masters, and I thought, oh gosh, uh, now what's he going (laughs) to (laughs) play? But actually, he was not in the Spanish Masters. Where did I meet him? I met him somewhere else, actually in the Kristine Memorial. And he also played a Svesh again. It is sound. I don't want to create the impression that it's not. It's fully fine. Um, As far as the stamps are concerned, I've been a stamp collector going back to my earliest days, and the collection is now just breathtaking. I'm president of KOSU, which is the Chess on Stamp study unit and editor of the Chess Stamp Review. I have been for more than 12 years now. And the collection, we have about 100 members who have very fine collections, winning medals at various exhibitions and the rest. And I've even written some, some, some a lot of chess, chess Stamp books as well. So.
0: And of course, Karpov, the most famous Chess Grandmaster Stamp collector, have, has, that, um, has that interest ever led you to cross paths with him?
1: It did. We actually, I at, at the world championship match between Karpov and, and Kasparov, um, I had a cover that was signed by both of them, and I was trying to get them both to sign it. And after one of the matches, Karpov had missed a win, and he was upset, and his hand was sort of shaking, but I went up with the cover. I thought, he'll surely sign this, and he reached out, grabbed the pen, and the pen didn't work. And oh, it was no. one of those frustrating moments of my, of my collecting life. About a weekend later, we were. I was at the Madison Square Garden for a big stamp club show, and I mentioned the story to one of the dealers. He said, "All right, it's your lucky day." see he had just sent the limo and Karpov arrived, and we got to talk for an hour about stamps and stuff, and it was great. And he did sign the cover, which I happened to have. With
0: him, wow! Amazing. So, w- what did what did he say about like what were the highlights of the hour long conversation?
1: Uh, you know, I remember lots of bits and pieces of it. He, he obviously had a lot of money. I would say a lot of money for a Russian um, and, was, and had built up enormously cool collections, not just for his chess collection, but Belgium and other things. And it was fun to observe. He wasn't there to talk to me, although he did. He was there to buy things from this dealer. And he was primarily interested in some of the more expensive proofs um, and imperfect items that are rare and very hard to find. Um, and he had more money at the time than I did, so his collection then was certainly better than mine. Um, but that's—I think—that's turned around in recent years. I'm pretty sure it has. <laughs> the <That> Apple stock—it's <laughs> a powerhouse. Apple and <laughs> Apple and Nvidia didn't. Yeah, this conversation is going to head back to stocks in no time. But yeah, it, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't hurt to have a little bit of money in your pocket. I, I you know, it, what's the old saying? I've,
0: ha- I've been rich and I've been poor, and rich is better. So right. Yeah. Just, yeah. Not the most important thing, but it doesn't hurt. It um, doesn't hurt. Cool. Well, I know you said it's not su- it's not super important which books one reads as long as one actually reads them, but I'm sure you do have some favorites. So <laughs> could, could you, uh, lip, as someone who's read so many chess books, uh, name a few of your favorites, John?
1: Yeah, well, I, I urge everybody uh, to explore different styles and the rest. So we start with tactics, and it's and it's Vukovic. Um, for positional play and for structural play, it's Petrosian. I, I would add there is not one single book about Petrosian that should be recommended because there isn't a good one. There are a lot of them, but none of them convey what I really believe about this guy and how important he is to the game. But um, that doesn't mean I still have every single book by him, about him, and, and those have been extremely influential. I've searched throughout all this literature for a pattern of play that's useful. For me, in my correspondence play and over the board, the two are very different skills. But Petrosian really is stinking important. And, and if, you haven't, if you haven't played those games, I mentioned the open game. Um, the end of that game, there's a white knight on G5. And once it gets there, the rest of the game after the knight gets to G5 is just a treat. It's just an utter treat. And if you've never seen it, then then, you know, I won't say stop listening to this podcast. Wait wait till the end of this podcast and then immediately go off and find the game and play through it.
0: Yeah, I actually play. I don't <laughs> I don't know it offhand, I'll say. I i I feel like I've probably seen it, but I don't know it offhand. Is it like uh is it amongst Petrosian's games, is it a very well known one?
1: No. And in fact if if the in all the collections of Petrosian games the game the, the open game doesn't appear.
0: Oh so maybe it I have it doesn't show
1: up. Um, I am not sure but I think it was my, my uncle Joe probably showed it to me. So I was classically taught by my uncle Joe I should insert that. He was taught by Manuel Lasker. Wow. And and so and this was Joseph Platz who was a very strong player out of the Bronx Chess Club. And the the the, the line on on Dr. Platts, he was a medical doctor, was that he won every single tournament that he finished but dutifully if if uh, someone called and was delivering a baby he would immediately stop and resign his game and go off <laughs> and deliver the baby so he had this funky reputation uh, he would have been he would have had an international reputation if he'd been something other than a doctor
0: wow can't fault him there so is this game i just looked it up john uh, 1954 belgrade is that it sounds like yes okay yeah it's not it um, doesn't even have a title on its chessgames.com page. has about <laughs> seven comments. Um, so, yeah, I'll be doing a deep dive. Uh, and maybe uh, we can do some bonus content with that sometime, too. Yeah, um, it just
1: happened. to it, it made an enormous impression upon me. Uh, and not because it's spectacular. It doesn't have some amazing combination. That's what you'd expect from a game that I'm pushing like this. Um, but it completely changed my approach to chess. Um, I
0: can't. And if you were to try honest, to I put said, into words what it changed, uh, what?
1: I grew up as a kid. I was I was full of energy, and I wanted to throw people off the board like tall.
0: Right. Everybody did.
1: And of course, you know you and I both understand that's not a terribly reliable way of programming. Right. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. Um, and and you occasionally get a great game in print. Um, either way, you may lose spectacularly too. I was looking around for something that was more reliable, and Petrosian was the key. Okay. It gives me an opportunity to win, not just some of the time, but all the time. And that's a kind of funny statement from somebody who just got through the world final without winning a game. <laughs> um, but I've won my share, and I've won my share along the way. Um, so, yeah.
0: Well, John, this has been fantastic. Really appreciate you sharing your your wisdom and your stories. It's been been a lot of fun to hear um and before we say our goodbyes is there there anything else you you would want to add
1: no i just expected one more stock question but uh, no stock fish <laughs> stock oh uh, stock, stock question, question. <laughs> oh sure yeah
0: so but thank you, know, you very much whenever i good. listen to a finance podcast they say uh, topics discussed are not investment advice or something like that so I, uh, absolutely Please we'll have, have to throw that in but past uh decisions past decisions are no indication <laughs> right but do you have success. any Any other companies that you're particularly uh, excited about? All right, I'll give everybody
1: a stock tip here. So long as nobody comes back and and decides to kneecap me when it goes down thirty percent. So in these in the supply chain era, where everything's being, it's it's hard figuring out where packages are and the rest. The key stock I think is Impinge, Um, stock name P, uh, uh, the ticker name is PI. P is in Peter, I is in Indigo. And they make these little radio frequency chips that stick on packages and the rest. And if you take a look at its recent stock chart, you'll go, "Oh my goodness gracious!" Okay, it also has a market cap of under three billion, so it's going to the moon.
0: Okay, there you have it. We, as you said, we won't. Um, you know, and we won't not responsible for your losses. So. Yeah, and in, invest responsibly. Um, yes. <laughs> we would say, uh, like, what what percentage of? I mean. You. It sounds like back when you were a grad student, you didn't. Um, you you probably put a, a decent chunk of your net worth into it. But but uh, generally, one is advised to not put more than say three percent of the money they have into an individual stock. But uh, we appreciate your insights on stocks as well as everything else, John. <laughs> um, and I know that. Um as far as I know, you're not super active on social media, if anyone wants to reach you is there or keep up with you, is there a way to do that? <laughs> yeah, they can they can email me. I'm
1: perfectly happy to have that happen if you if I
0: can give out my email address. Sure, yeah, I can I already have it, so I'll put so it in Jed the Weeds. notes dot chess at and anybody who wants
1: a free copy of the chess stamp review is welcome to. Me.
0: okay so i'll uh, I'll link to that as well. well, John, it's been a lot of fun. I mean obviously we've we've chatted a few times off the record, but it's good to get you on the record as well. A pleasure, Ben. I really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, Ben, at PerpetualChessPod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the Podcast Network.